The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. Olas Media presents Nation State of Play. Welcome to the Nation State of Play podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode, we explore the political stories that are driving public policy in California. We explore these stories with political insiders, business leaders, journalists, and policymakers themselves to get below the surface of the headlines and show you the true forces shaping our nation state. Thanks for listening today. We have a great guest, Tiffany Muller with End Citizens United. Tiffany is one of the foremost leaders in the country on the topic of big money in politics. And we have a conversation about what we can do at the federal and state level to limit that and in the long run, get rid of it. But also how candidates can be talking about these issues right now in a way that connects voters to the issues that seem top of mind to them, but that are really being impacted by big money in politics. So a pleasure to have Tiffany on. We have a a bit of a focus on the California congressional races that are really going to determine the outcome of this election, but also the long-term efforts in this space. So stay with us. Tiffany Muller with M Citizens United. Tiffany, thanks so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Ryan. It's great to be here. All right. So I actually want to start with a little bit of a high level refresher for what Citizens United is, because it's been a, a dozen years since the case. Is that, is that about right? And Can you uh, believe it? It has been. It's, it's been it 12 is hard years. to believe. Yeah. yeah. It still feels like a curse word on the top of my tongue. Um, so, uh, but that's what, if we could, for the listeners who've heard of it, which I assume is just about everybody, but, but given that it's been over a decade, What did the case do? Where does it leave campaign finance law in the United States? Well, it leaves it in a pretty bad position, Brian. That's kind of the long and the short of it. But the Citizens United decision was um, decided by the Supreme Court in January 2010. Um, So we are a little over a dozen years out from the decision. And it on a high level, it did. Uh, it took two really terrible ideas and it merged them together. First, the decision said corporations are people, uh, and it said that money equals free speech. And so, basically, what I was saying was that corporations had the right to spend um, unlimited amounts of money in our politics and to impact and influence our elections. Because uh, if they didn't have that right, it would limit their right to free speech. And so, you know, what we saw from that, the warnings right after the Citizens United ruling were that this was going to cause a tidal wave of money to come into our elections. And those have absolutely proven to be true, right? Um, If you look at the election cycles right before the Citizens United case, there was about $175 million of outside spending in our elections. Um, in 2020, I think that had skyrocketed up to just about uh, $5 billion or something to that uh, effect. The other thing it's done, um, there was a part of the decision that said the way that you make sure that this money isn't corrupting is you make sure that there's disclosure and transparency around the money that's spent and or given in elections. 
And Brian, what we've seen is that that's just simply not true. Prior to the Citizens United decision, um, about 86% of the money spent in our elections was fully disclosed and transparent. You could trace it back to where it originally came from. Today, that's only 25% of the money spent in our elections is fully disclosed and transparent. So the foundation of that case really rested on being able to have that disclosure and transparency so that you could make sure that there wasn't corruption being built into the system. Um, What we know is that the sheer influence of this amount of money is corrupting. It corrupts Americans' faith and trust in our government. Um, It corrupts policy outcomes. But also, we don't have that disclosure or transparency as well. Yeah. And those numbers on spending are fascinating. I mean, just for context, we, we've got uh, two competing ballot initiatives on gaming on the ballot right now in California. Those initiatives alone are going to spend over $200 million uh, just the cycle. So, so that's more than what you're saying. All the spending was prior to Citizens yes. United. That's a one ballot initiative in one state for context. Um, okay. So that's very helpful. I think, I think where a lot of us uh, sometimes really have to slow down and get, get tripped up then is as a general matter, it's a complicated legal legal topic, but what is the interaction of Citizens United with state fi- campaign finance laws on these topics? How, how do those two legal regimes work together at a high level? Right. So um, I'm going to take Montana as a good example because I think Montana is often a good example around money and politics, but um, Montana attempted had had a ban on corporate money in their elections for over a hundred years when Citizens United was was ruled on because they had a long history of copper mining kings trying to buy seats in their both legislature and their governor. Um, And so they had outlawed uh, corporate spending in their elections. And they also have some of the most um, strict disclosure and transparency laws uh, on the books. And Steve Bullock, who at the time was attorney general um, prior to becoming governor, took the took an appeal of Citizens United all the way up to the Supreme Court to try to get the state restriction on corporate money upheld. Right. Fine. You do whatever you're going to do, Supreme Court on federal elections. But here in the state of Montana, Montanans made this decision. They voted for this. They put it in our Constitution. This is what we should be able to continue to operate on. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't. Um, Right. So while states are still allowed to set limits, they're still allowed uh, to set disclosure rules. um, They're not allowed to just do an outright ban on corporate money in elections um, because the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling overrules that. So there's a lot of things we've seen states do on the proactive level, everything from disclosure, transparency, limits, um, uh, limits on lobbyist giving. Um, also, we've seen things like uh, incentivizing small dollar donors, uh, some of the states across the country. Um, so different states definitely have, have tried different things. Um, but kind of just the heart of Citizens United about corporations being able to spend to influence our elections, that part has been upheld even over state law. Well, that's an interesting topic. Let's let's unpack that a little more. Do you have a view on what some of the best practices are at the state level that they that states can do now that are not going to get 
uh, you know, sideways with the Citizens United? Yeah, there's uh, there's still a lot of room to work. And, you know, I really think that what we have to do is figure out what's our what's our goal. And I think our goal is that right now, too many Americans feel like both state and federal government isn't working for them, right? That it's just working for folks who have the biggest pocketbook or the special interest. And it really has hurt faith and trust in in our in our basic representation and in our system of government, right? Um, there is a reason that people feel like big pharma has more say than they do. A big part of it is the hundreds of millions of dollars that big pharma spends and the 1,500 lobbyists that they have on any given day, right? So I think what we need to look at is how do we restore that faith and that trust in government and what can states do to help with that? And there are lots of options. Disclosure and transparency, I think, is number one. Knowing who's spending what and why, right? Because if you don't know who's running that ad on your TV, you're not sure whether or not you should be skeptical of it, cynical of it, trust it or not. And here's the other thing. We have found that disclosure and transparency also brings some of the money out of the system. It turns out AT&T doesn't want you to know that they helped fund uh, the Republican attorney general and that they were running, you know, uh, anti-democracy pieces right before January 6th. It turns out they don't want that disclosure to be known. So first, disclosure and transparency. That's how we can root out corruption. That's how we can hold public officials more accountable. Number two, we push for limits. And, you know, there are a few states that still have unlimited contributions. Texas being one of them, right, where it's just kind of the wild, wild west, and you see politicians uh, asking for a million dollar donations. We think that there should be real limits on what someone is able to give, whether that is a business or a person. Um, And then I think number three, that there are ways to also um, put limits around who can give. In some states, they have been able to. Uh, put limits around state contractors and whether or not they can give to statewide officials, for instance, so that there's not that pay to play angle going on. And then the last one that I'll throw out is the small dollar donor matching. How do we incentivize and grow, democratize really, our campaign finance system? How do we bring more people into it? And in states where they have had small dollar donor matching programs or voucher programs, what we've seen is it changes the makeup of not only who um, who gives money, uh, who is able to participate in our democracy, but who is even able to run for office and who wins. And so in Maine, I'll take Maine as a good example, they enacted a public financing system, um, a clean election system, and it actually changed the makeup of their state legislature to where it became the most blue-collar uh, working state legislature in the country. Seattle instituted a voucher program, and suddenly for the first time, candidates of color and women candidates were able to run and win at a much higher rate because they were able to use their network of people. Um, they had strong grassroots support, but they those grassroots supporters didn't always have the same wealth. And so by incentivizing these small-dollar donors, we can really grow our democracy. Let me ask you about the limits one, because because I, I struggle with this. I, I cer- certainly agree on on the logic of limits, but it, you know, I'll just use California's example. It's one I'm most familiar with. We, we have different limits at different state um, office levels. 
and it really, I think, just pushes money into the outside spending because because you know we because I I guess that's inherently part of the Citizens United framework, right? Is there really a, there's no way to put a limit on outside spending? I assume, right? That's right. I mean, I think that. Um, that has been one of the biggest problems of Citizens United, whether at the state level or federal level. What we've seen is that candidates no longer are the primary drivers of campaign spending, that it truly is outside, uh, outside groups and super PACs, right? And that state by state differs on whether those can coordinate with candidates or not. Um, so in a lot of ways, in a lot of states, they end up just acting as another vehicle of the cam- campaign and candidate itself. It feels like this is just how business is done now, but it really wasn't that long ago when uh, candidates controlled about 75% of the messaging and spending in their races. And outside spending really was kind of an afterthought. Now, today, it's like the candidates themselves are afterthoughts. And the outside spending is driving about 75 or 80% of the spending in these races. I actually think it's one of the reasons why you can see really, really, um, frankly, unqualified and incompetent people be able to run for office and be able to still be competitive um, because they're just being propped up. and Their campaigns are, in essence, a shell. And they're just being propped up uh, by the outside special interests. But you are right. It's one of the big, big problems that came with the decision. Okay. So it sounds like you're advocating at the state level as well as the federal level on some of these reforms. Am I, am I overstating that? No, not at all. Yeah, we have worked on both ballot measures and state uh, laws in states across the country. You know, we the main clean elections bill that I was talking about, we actually worked on that back when it initially passed. The, Seattle voucher program we did as well. But we also are trying to fight back against a, the rash of voter suppression laws that we've seen across the country and trying to help uh, stop uh, those and trying to push for good campaign finance reforms in states across the country. So Oregon is a state, for example, that really has no limits, uh, has a lot of room to grow on their campaign finance uh, reform. And we've worked closely with both uh, Governor Kate Brown and Speaker uh, Kotek, who's obviously running for governor, to come up with policies that would really, one, both be upheld by their Supreme Court and, and the Supreme Court of the United States, but also would have meaningful changes to their system, just as a few examples. Yeah, and it's great to hear those examples because it it sounds like the path to actually overturning Citizens United. You know, we're at least <laughs> two both two Supreme Court justices away, right? And maybe even more, but but at yeah. least at least two, probably probably two. Is that the way you you count the math? That's the way I would count. Yeah. Um, look, I think we were. If you look back to 2016, and we were founded in 2015, and in 2016, uh, as I'm sure all of your listeners remember. We had an open Supreme Court seat. Uh, Merrick Garland was nominated to fill that seat. And uh, Mitch McConnell blocked his appointment for uh, until after the election, what, for nine months, 10 months. And then 
push through who was the first one, Gorsuch, right? Yeah. Uh, for that seat. I always say that we were a Merrick Garland away <laughs> from overturning <laughs> the amazing. Citizens United. <clears throat> we really were. That was a, yeah. at the time, that was a 5 4 court. Uh, it, this would have changed it to be 5 4, I think, in favor of overturning Citizens United. So we were a Merrick Garland away. And now the court obviously has been radicalized even more in a large part because of dark money, which I'm happy to talk about. But the court is now 6-3. I still think the path to getting five justices to overturn Citizens United is probably closer than the path to passing a constitutional amendment. Sure. Um, But that doesn't mean that there isn't anything we can do between now and then. There's so much that we can do through you know, anti-corruption measures, through the disclosure and transparency that we were talking about through uh, strengthening the Federal Elections Commission and actually getting it to enforce the laws that are currently on the books, cracking down on coordination between outside groups and campaigns. Like, there's a lot of these loopholes that we could start to close. And obviously, Democrats have been both pushing that and have passed that time and time again, especially through the House. And it got blocked by the filibuster in the Senate uh, this time around. But that's what we are focused on is how do we continue to push for legislative changes that would make a difference today while we're also working on that longer term. So legislative changes at the federal and state level, um, it, uh, legislative changes are, are going to confront a filibuster at any time, presumably. So it, it sounds like at the moment, the most important thing you can do is work on the races, work on the elections, elect good people to Congress who won't overturn that and work at the state level, or, or am I missing something there? No, I mean, that's pretty much our theory of change is that first we have to uh, <laughs> elect, have the right people in office. And to do that, we have to get the right people elected. Um, what we've been able to show time and time and time again is how important these issues are to voters. I think um, in our line of work, there was a pretty widely held sentiment that voters didn't care about any of these issues. I think we've been able to show that actually voters really care about these issues. It is central to their ideas about whether or not government is working for them and who government is working for. And it can actually help us win all across the country and particularly in tough races. So in 2018, it was central to taking back the House. And um, we had a class of reformers who had run on these issues across the country who came in and then were ready to take the fight on in terms of federal policy and who passed a lot of uh, pieces of legislation in the House to have it blocked by Mitch McConnell in the Senate, obviously. Um, But that continuing to show that power from the voters is also really important. Uh, it matters in terms of who we get elected, and it matters for keeping the agenda at the uh, keeping this issue at the top of the agenda. Well, let's talk about some of those those key members. Um, and you were out here in California, I think, last week, and um, we're campaigning with a few of them. We, you know, I, I, we've talked to, on the show a few times about this, but we certainly have the most competitive congressional races in California. The thing about um, being in California and saying it the most of anything is like we're supposed to be the most of everything. It's really, really big state, <laughs> uh, but but we actually genuinely have you know about a half a dozen competitive congressional races, and and by all. Um, ways of doing the math. I think control of the House is going to tip on what ha- what happens with these races. So let's talk about the candidates yeah. you were with and, and the ones that are on uh, your radar the most. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is a good example of that class of candidates who came in in 2018 running on these issues. So I was out there with uh, Mike Levin and Katie Porter uh, when I was with uh, uh, Congressman Levin. We were also doing uh, campaigning with Congressman Adam Schiff and Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, both who uh, have really made democracy a central part of their work as well. But, you know, Congressman Levin ran on these issues in 2018. He obviously is a leader on climate change and environmental issues, really takes on big oil and connects it back to he is one of the members who took the no corporate PAC pledge. He really connects his work around taking on big oil, being able to uh, take on the fight for our environment to that stance of I'm not going to take their money so I can do what's right for the people of my district. So we we were out there campaigning with him. And then I was also uh, up in Irvine doing a town hall with Katie Porter, Congresswoman Katie Porter, who she's been probably one of the biggest allies fighting this fight in Congress since she came in. She also doesn't take corporate PAC money, also refuses to take lobbyist money. She was one of the members who started the End Corruption Caucus. She she actually said during the town hall, she was like, there were there are two different. I said I made the joke that there are caucuses for everything in Congress, but there had never been a caucus to take on corruption. Uh, and she she reminded all of us that there are actually two caucuses in Congress about concrete, about different types of concrete. That's fascinating. Uh, Competition. competition, but had never been an anti-corruption caucus. And so she is, you know, her work is always, and we see it with the whiteboard and we see it with the questioning and hearings and how she's taking on CEOs. It's all about being able to be the voice of the people and how do we call out special interests who might be getting um, the benefit of policies that have been crafted for them, right? How do we begin to level that playing field of power? And um, she's so fantastic on it. And her opponent, I mean, he is a a walking corruption scandal. Uh, so that contrast in that race is so, so critical. Another one of our priorities in uh, up in Northern California, Josh Harder, who has just been running a fantastic race. You know, time after time, his district continues to be such a crucial swing district. And he is... So great. Uh, another one of these folks who came in in 2018, running as a no corporate PAC candidate, running on reforming the system, and also about delivering what's needed for his district and keeping it very, very local, right? He really connects, is so good about connecting everything back to what, to the very local politics. And I think it helps him really be able to um, overperform the generic Democrat. Speaking of caucuses, by the way, do you know about the wine caucus that Mike Thompson from Napa runs? Of that's, course, that's that's uh, one of the, one of I'm still looking for an invite to, to, to one of the to one of those events. Uh, the but, Oregon members are always uh, complaining about the California wine caucus instead of the Oregon wine. The caucus. Great wine country too, but we but we digress. <laughs> Washington, Oregon, California should all get together. Okay, so I'm curious how you see members effectively talking about these topics to voters in this cycle with so much else going on, right? That that has to 
of course, be, be the struggle in, in a lot of ways. I mean, we've got inflation, we've got, we've got a war, you know, we've got the January 6th hearings going on, which I actually think are probably related in a lot of ways. Um, how, how, what's your advice to members uh, on how to connect with voters about this topic with so much other competition for voters' attention? Yeah, we actually just did a big uh, ad testing project to actually figure out, like, how can you talk about these issues and have it really resonate with voters? and. You know, one of the things that we see is it's not enough to just say that your opponent has, you know, taken money from Big Pharma and then voted with them. Voters expect that. Voters know that, right? It works. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But what we find to be most effective is when you actually are able to talk to voters and say, you know, we know you're frustrated with a broken system that that you feel like is continuing to leave you behind. That is why I have a plan or Democrats have a plan to change the system so that we can address all of these issues, right? That positive piece of it is really important, particularly with breaking through on cynical voters, independent voters, swing voters. They need to hear the, I'm going to change the system because they're so fed up with the system. That, by the way, that's not new, right? Like voters have been voting for change every two years yeah, for the for last 20 years, yeah. right? And the and feeling like government is only working for a few big powerful interests instead of working for them, again, for the last 20 years. And so I think it's about, though, being able to demonstrate and to say, I have a plan for fixing it. And one of the things that we know about the No Corporate PAC pledge in particular, to bring it back to that, is that that allowed someone to say, look, I am running my campaign different. It's how you know I'll go and be in Washington and serve different. And it's how you know I'll always work for you because I'm not going to take their money on one hand and then vote with them on the other hand, right? That kind of messaging really resonates. That's what we've seen. And look, inflation, I think, is a really, really great place to talk about this. What we're seeing right now with inflation and rising costs is that about 53% of the uh, rise in prices is due to corporations just padding their own profit, right? In the past, that number has been much closer to 10 or 11% of um, the rise in price being attributed to corporate profits. Uh, During this time, it's 53%. Well, there's a whole lot we could be doing to hold those corporations accountable, but they have a lot of power in Congress right now. So if we're able to break some of that power and actually call them out, we can actually address both inflation and rising prices while also addressing corporate power in our system. So your point to members, at least part of your point is take these specific issues and and show voters how they're linked the influence of, of big money in politics. Yeah, absolutely. You got to make money in politics. Voters hate money in politics, but they also are a little bit cynical. They're a little bit like, well, money in politics has always been a problem. Well, there's nothing you can do about it, right? But if you start talking to them about individual, uh, how money in politics impacts issues that they really care about, then you make it more real for them. So how does it impact the policy debate and outcome on climate change, for instance, right? Well, big oil and gas is the largest spender on the Republican side in campaigns. And they have, I know I said this earlier about pharma, but it's true of uh, big oil and gas too. They have 1,500 lobbyists on Capitol Hill on any given day. It's three for every one member of Congress, right? 
So it's very clear how the money is impacting the outcome of policy. Gun safety, the power of the NRA and the money from the NRA and the gun lobby has long caused there to be a 25 or 30 year stagnation on what we've been able to pass, obviously, around gun safety, prescription drugs, even the fight over $35 insulin. So much of this can be traced back to the power of big pharma directly related to the checks they hand out or the money that they're spending in elections. Make it personal, make voters understand how it impacts their day-to-day life and tell them how you have a plan to make it better. Well, that's such good advice. It's so much that I'd love to unpack, but I want to be respectful of your time. But but let me ask you one one more issue that I wonder how you talk about the connection on, if if you do at all. And that's the January 6th hearings. Um, Because I think this is a hard one for me to understand how it's actually going to change voter behavior. There's certainly an element of preaching to the choir on this. I think Fox has not even run the hearings, for instance, which is not at all to suggest it's not tremendously important. I think the work they've done is incredible. I think it's going to advance the Justice Department investigation and Merrick Garland probably becomes a more important figure in history in this role than, than even on the su- Supreme Court, but, but we'll, leave, we'll leave that to another episode. Uh, but but how, how, when that comes up, what was the relationship in your mind between big money and politics and what happened on that day? Yeah, so it's hard. I think that there is a future of our country answer and there is, we're 14 days out from a midterm answer, right? Well, let's so do both. I, if you, if you've, got, far, to if do you've got a few minutes, let's do both. I got yes. a Number one, I think that, look, our democracy is being attacked um, in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, the money in politics is a direct attack on our democracy. The voter suppression that we're seeing across the country, the gerrymandering that we've seen that really blocks out people's voices and power. And obviously, this very direct election subversion and big lie and how it led to a literal insurrection attempt. I think that the January 6th hearings, I think one of the things that surprised me anyway, I won't speak for other people, but what surprised me is it actually did move public yeah, opinion. It really did. It, it really did. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think what they did was so incredibly, tremendously important. And for the future of our country and for the future of our democracy, it is something we have to continue to show the evidence, show the facts, draw it out, and show how it also relates back to all those other attacks that I just talked about, right? How they're using it to attack our right to vote, how it was all funded by these big dark money uh, sources, which is why we need to get the big dark money out of our system, right? Like there, all of these are really interconnected. So that's one piece. But the other piece is, you know, frankly, what we've also seen is that talking about January 6th in TV ads has the tendency to, it definitely motivates part of our base. It also has backlash with some of the Republican base, right? And so particularly for voters under the age of 45, for instance, we know through lots of different ad testing that these messages are great for Black voters under the age of 45. Well, that's great, but it also has an almost, uh, it has a backlash effect with white voters under the age of 45. So I think it is about finding, making sure that you're targeting the right voters with this message, making sure that you are delivering it to the right voters. And then when you are talking about it on a broader scale, 
really leaning into the, what we found anyway, is that leaning into the attack on the police on that day is the part that really breaks uh, breaks through and brings independent voters over to you. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really good advice. I've certainly seen that anecdotally in my, in my own conversations with, um, you know, conservative colleagues, friends, people I, people I know. But there's this really maddening part about the topic, and you alluded to this, where there's a certain group of people, I actually think it's a pretty large group of people, who can't even say what happened on that day. It's, it's yeah. this weird cognitive dissonance. That like you can't even say there was an insurrection. You can't even say there's a pro-Trump mob that invaded the Capitol and killed people. These are just facts, and and they get a they they oddly get offended by you saying even the most innocuous description of it. Yes, it's just one of those things that's so polarizing that I feel like that's all the more reason we have to talk about it. Right? There's the, there's yeah. this element of sort of trying to scrub history from the other other side on it. And I think that's where the committee hearings have been really effective. Is, is just I mean, driving it home. It, it's so clear how quickly the whitewashing started. Right. And, um, but even before the uh, alternative history uh, narrative started to take off, which was really just within days of January 6th, I mean, think about it. Uh, on January 6th, they came back at 4 a.m. And, you know, we've now seen, especially in this latest hearing, you see Kevin McCarthy standing by Speaker Pelosi as she is, you know, coordinating help, right? You see Steve Scalise standing there as all of the leadership together is trying to make sure that they get help, that they secure the Capitol, that they make sure the members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are safe and okay, that they make sure Mike Pence is okay. And Kevin McCarthy walks back into that House chamber and votes to overturn the election, along with 146 other of his colleagues. The fact that what he decided in that moment was it was going to be more beneficial to his political power to still try to go ahead and overturn the election and that our country at that moment did not matter more to him than his own political future um, is both frightening and maddening and saddening. Um, but it, it really tells us about all we need to know about most of the House GOP caucus, I think. Well, well said. And, you know, we're going to have to wrap there, but I'd love to have you back after the election. Um, I'd love to. To, to, talk, to talk about priorities for this Congress. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy is going to be there, unfortunately, one way or the other, regardless yep. of what role he's going to be in. And, um, you know, we, we, want to make sure that as a Californian that his constituents get a dose of these topics because we know they're not hearing it from him. So we'd love to have you back on some point after that. And um, best luck with what you're doing in the next few weeks. If people want to read more about your organization, get involved, support your work, where, where can they find out? Well, first, thanks so much for having me on. I'd love to come back and continue the conversation. And for anyone interested, you can go to endcitizensunited.org endcitizensunited.org and uh, get involved. Tiffany, thanks so much for everything you're doing. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at neptuneops.com or on Twitter at at nationstateofp1. Again, that's at nationstateofp and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. Thank you for listening to the Nation State of Play podcast powered by Neptune Ops. Hola.
Media.